My name is Gary Meyer, and I am a Catholic priest for the Archdiocese of St. Louis, currently celebrating my 15-year anniversary to the priesthood. And I want to say, first of all, that I love the Catholic Church. I love having had the opportunity to minister as a Catholic priest for the past 15 years and to serve the people of God. Having said that, I am also aware that if you are an LGBT Catholic or an LGBT ally, the chances are right now in our church you are feeling unsupported, you're feeling rejected, abandoned, and even unloved. And that would certainly be consistent with the voices we've been hearing coming from the pulpit in our church. That was a recording of Gary Meyer, who in 2013 came out as gay. Coming out conjures images of pride parades, of sexual liberation, of people declaring their sexual orientations and gender identities in ways that free them from earlier lives of secrecy. But for some people, this process takes place within religious communities that love them conditionally. Many Catholics have struggled to reconcile their faith and their desires within a church that views homosexual acts as sinful and disordered. How to have both faith and love is a question that has haunted devout gays and lesbians and bisexuals in the Catholic Church for decades. Gay priests, especially, have had to make wrenching choices between their faith and their sexuality. In this episode of Sex and History, we look at the Catholic Church's stained glass closet by focusing on three gay men who were priests or seminarians in the Archdiocese of St. Louis 30 years ago. Phil T. Meyer, Jeff Fomond, and Gary Meyer's overlapping stories, their friendships, their faith, as well as the ways in which they came out to themselves and each other within Catholic institutions, speak to the intertwined histories of desire and devotion. Their stories are not a simple journey from repression to freedom. Instead, they reveal how devout gay men struggle to understand their worthiness and to create a place for themselves in Catholic spaces that offered only limited support and bounded love. I'm Gillian Frank. And I'm Lauren Gutterman. Welcome to Sexing History. The coming out experiences of Phil T. Meyer, Jeff Vomond, and Gary Meyer were shaped by broader debates over homosexuality within the Catholic Church. Although it might seem like the Catholic Church's anti-gay position is simple and timeless, Catholic theologians have debated the significance of queerness since the 1950s. Catholic theologians wrestled over the meaning of same-sex desires, identities, and acts, and devout gays and lesbians sought to create spaces for themselves in Catholic theology, within their parishes, in gay-affirming Catholic groups, and in the priesthood. The Catholic Church's official teaching on same-sex relations reflected and reinforced broader anti-gay sentiments in the United States after World War II. Like many of their Protestant counterparts, Catholics viewed homosexuality as deviant and pathological, and church officials upheld heterosexual marriage as the only morally acceptable form of sexual relationship. In the decades before 1970, church authorities avoided making public statements on homosexuality. Catholic theologians, meanwhile, regularly distinguished between homosexual acts and identities, what they termed the difference between sexuality and genitality. These theologians explained that homosexual orientation in and of itself was not immoral. However, acting upon and celebrating such feelings was a sin. Theologians insisted that the best hope for homosexuals was to learn how to resist their sexual desires and to embrace chastity. The rise of an increasingly visible and militant gay rights movement in the 1960s inspired Catholic theologians and churchgoers to redefine the relationship between their faith and their sexuality. A small but vocal group of Catholic theologians tried to dignify same-sex relationships. In 1969, Father John J. McNeil, a Jesuit priest, explained that the homosexual is faced with the dilemma of continuing his relationship with the church at the price of his loss of any deep human relationship, or of seeking his personal growth and identity only at the price of cutting himself off from the church. Gay-affirming views like McNeil's gained some traction. By 1970, the Christian News Service noted that while some Catholic moralists 
had not come to the conclusion that gay is good, they have, in considerable numbers, accepted the view that gay is in certain cases tolerable. While theologians debated the proper Catholic response to homosexuality, gay Catholic churchgoers and their allies formed their own organizations, such as Dignity and New Ways Ministry. Dignity argued that gay Catholics were members of Christ's mystical body and therefore have inherent worth and dignity. Rather than understanding expressions of same-sex desire as immoral, they insisted that gays could express their sexuality in a matter consonant with Christ's teaching. Here's Bob Fournier, Dignity's newsletter editor, in 1973. We have to learn how to love and learn how to express it. It can't be all cooped up inside of us. We've got to express it in some way. That is the teaching of Christ, and it is the teaching of the church. So we have to learn to think of living. We have to learn to think of all our actions in terms of love, not I can't do this because I'm going to go to hell, but I'm going to do this because it expresses my love of God, my love for my fellow man. It shows that I have a true love for myself. That's the positive approach. And the gay Catholic, if he's going to live a healthy gay Catholic life, has to be able to approach his life in that way. Because even though we can love in many different ways, the most fulfilling human love involves sex. And if the gay Catholic can't even start with the positive, if he can't even start with the fact that he is good as he came from God, then he's going to have a horror of sex that's going to make his life on this earth really a hell. As gay Catholics became more visible, church leaders became more vocal in condemning them and the gay rights movement. In 1974, the National Conference of Catholic Bishops issued a document repudiating the idea that each person has the right to variety in sexual expression contingent upon his sexual orientation. Such proclamations set the stage for an increasingly public conflict between gay Catholics and church leadership. One such battle made national news in 1974 when Brian McNaught, a columnist for the newspaper of the Detroit Archdiocese, came out publicly. Here's Brian McNaught. I, uh graduated from um, Marquette University with a degree in journalism and filed in 1970 as a conscientious objector against the war in Vietnam. My alternative service uh, with the um, Roman Catholic Church diocesan newspaper in Detroit was recognized, and so I was a columnist and reporter there for four years. In 1976, I founded the Detroit Chapter of Dignity, which is a gay Catholic organization. And uh, the religion editor of the Detroit News called me and asked if she could interview me. I happened to know her personally, but she didn't know that I was gay. Um, so it was my coming out. And uh, she asked if I would be interviewed, and I said yes. And I um, uh, told my folks and told the people at work that this article was going to be coming out. Uh, and uh, on Monday, the Detroit, on Saturday, the Detroit News had a big story called, on homosexuality and religion um, in which I was featured. And, uh, and when I went to work on Monday, they told me they were dropping my column, and, uh, which was a weekly column aimed at people you know, my age about civil rights and the Catholic Church and um, you know, I was very spiritual, very religious, and uh, came through in my column, but uh, because I came out publicly, they dropped my column. I uh, subsequently went on a um, hunger strike, which after 24 days ended when bishops in Detroit pledged to work to educate the clergy on homosexuality. So I ended my fast and was fired the next day from my job. Um, and that began a... Um, 50-year career of doing public education on uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender issues. Sometimes church leaders supported gay rights. In 1978, bishops from the Diocese of San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Oakland 
proposed anti-gay legislative initiatives in California. And in 1982, the Archbishop of Milwaukee supported the passage of a Wisconsin state-level gay rights bill. High-profile attacks by prominent Catholic leaders overshadowed this notable support. In the 1980s, Cardinal John O'Connor of New York City spearheaded attacks on gay rights. He repeatedly challenged the New York City government's support for gay rights legislation and protections. O'Connor also signaled his disapproval of gay Catholic organizations, ordering one Manhattan church to cancel a long-standing weekly mass for gay and lesbian Dignity members. O'Connor was part of an increasingly vocal condemnation of same-sex relations among the church's highest officials. In October 1986, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, who would later become Pope Benedict XVI, issued a document entitled Letter on the Pastoral Care of Homosexual Persons. This document described same-sex relations as essentially self-indulgent and declared that homosexuality was an objective disorder and an intrinsic moral evil. It also blamed gays for homophobic violence, stating that when a society condones homosexuality, it ought to be no surprise that violent reactions increase. The Bay Area reporter in San Francisco distilled the gay community's understanding of this letter with the headline, Pope to Gays, Drop Dead. As the church tilted against gay rights, gay and lesbian Catholics continued to push for greater acceptance. For Gary Meyer, Phil T. Meyer, and Jeff Fomond, the conversation about gay rights was personal. How could they come out as gay and belong to the priesthood or a religious order? Phil, Jeff, and Gary entered the seminary in St. Louis in the 1990s. They did so on the heels of a dramatic shift within the culture of seminaries in the United States. By the 1970s, seminaries began to relax rules against affection and physical contact between students. They did so in order to create a warmer, more loving environment. At the same time, more seminarians began announcing themselves as gay. While not all Catholics welcomed these shifts, Many seminaries supported students who were questioning their sexuality or who identified as gay. Seminaries regularly offered affirmative psychological services to help gay seminarians reconcile their faith and their sexual orientation. Gary was out before entering the church. He found that his homosexuality posed no barrier to his acceptance within the seminary so long as he remained celibate. When I approached the seminary, I, I told the seminary in, in 93, 94, whenever that was, that I am a gay man. Uh, in fact, they asked me, everyone that interviewed me at the seminary asked, her, do, you, do you know your orientation, your sexual, your sexual orientation? And I said, yes, I do. And they said, um, are you comfortable with it? And I said, sure. Uh, some of them asked what it was. And I said, well, my sexual orientation is homosexual. And they said, uh, can you be celibate? I said, that's a great question. I don't know, and, but I think I can. I mean, it's certainly going to find out. So the, the, the seminary didn't have an issue at that time in 93, didn't have an issue with me being homosexual. Um, and so I never thought that would be an issue, to be a priest in the church and be gay. Um, I, I just didn't see that that was in conflict at that time. Unlike um, some of our evangelical Christian brothers and sisters who think being gay is 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 an abomination, right? The evangelical folks will say, you know, you're gay, you're an abomination, whether you act on it or not. At least the Catholic Church's teaching says, that, hey, it's okay to be gay, but we just don't think it's immoral to act on that desire. Phil T. Meyer also found seminary to be a surprisingly welcoming place. After one year of seminary in St. Louis, he attended the North American College in Rome, where he studied for three years. In both places, Phil recalled that his spiritual advisors did not seek to change his sexual orientation. They understood his same-sex desires as a test of his faith. When I did make moments of self-revelation about my feelings, it was always met with, um, with sort of warmth and support, especially because I had chosen so carefully, right, to confide with priests who whom I had deemed to be more open-minded, to be more 
to be less traditional, to be less committed to sort of the hardcore orthodoxy that uh, especially ran rampant in places like Rome. And what I always experienced, a tremendous amount of compassion, uh, a tremendous amount of willingness to uh, to kind of say, hey, this is part of your spiritual journey. This is something that's, you know, not, not necessarily being gay is something that's blessed by God, but kind of working through the sort of St. Paul-like thorn-in-the-flesh sorts of feeling is very much part of the Christian spirituality, and it's going to be very much part of how you will grow closer to God and walk with God in relationship through your life as um, a Christian, as a Catholic, and as a priest. It weighed on me to, to kind of have the fear that I would be found out or that I would be confronted or, or whatever. Um, but it didn't happen that way. I think, I think I was given, being given a leash to see where it would go. And, and hopefully the thought was that I would come back to, uh, to recommit myself to, um, to celibacy. For Gary, Phil, and Jeff, seminary became a place for spiritual and sexual self-discovery. It was also a place where they fell in love with other men. Here's Jeff Fomond. It was my first time of really being infatuated with someone, really like, and and he, I don't know that he fell in love back, to be honest, but he, he reciprocated with a deep friendship. We hung out a lot, we talked a lot. Uh, we had, you know, we had a lot in common, we traveled a little bit. Uh, so I don't know I don't know that he loved me in the same way, just to be honest. But he certainly, we certainly had a great affection and care for each other uh, and great friendship for a time. But I, I struggled mightily with setting boundaries on it. You know, I always wanted more of his time or more energy or more this or more that. And even though it was, it was a celibate relationship as far as physically, uh, it was very difficult for me to keep it emotionally, like an emotional perspective on it or an emotional space on it. Uh, and that was, uh, I mean, it was hard for him because I, I think I was probably too pushy or too overbearing or whatever. It was hard for me because I didn't, I, I wasn't labeling it as a, as a dating or a, a same sex loving, or it was just somebody I wanted to spend a lot of time with. And, uh, be closer with I didn't really under, understand it or, or didn't label it or name it correctly um, and so it was super confusing for a while and of course then once I was able to say to myself oh well I'm gay and also that, that relationship went from confusing to like oh I just had you know it's so in love no wonder <laughs> so then it all you know then it all made a lot a lot more sense to me People just started to notice that. So the you know, the, the rector called me in and said, "Hey, we're having this problem. We found out about this. What you know, what's going on?" And I told them, and we you know we were we're celibate. We're just good friends. But they asked me to, well, they asked me, they demanded that I uh, <laughs> that I go to a counselor and get some therapy. And that with a kind of in counseling or therapy for a year and a half or so. And that really, I mean, that made all the difference in some sense. Uh, so in, in one way, you know, even though the, the atmosphere was very homophobic and anti-sex in the seminary in general, you know, in another way, ironically, the church really paid for and put me on the path to being okay with my own sexuality and, and loving who I am and being aware of what it even means to be gay and how to act responsibly in that in the world. It helped me, helped me live in and love the body and the sexuality I was given. Part of what sustained these gay seminarians and priests in the 1990s was their belief that the church was changing its views on homosexuality. While the church still described homosexual acts as inherently disordered and contrary to natural law, it also argued that people could not choose their sexual orientation. A new catechism explained that homosexuals should be accepted with respect, compassion, and sensitivity. U.S. Catholic bishops 
issued a pastoral letter advising the parents of gay and lesbian children to love their children and not abandon or reject them. Gary, Phil, and Jeff all remembered their superiors telling them that the Catholic Church was evolving and changing. As Gary recalls, this gave him hope for the future. In, in the same way that people ministered to me as I was going through seminary and trying to decipher and discern whether I could be a gay priest and if that was okay. Uh, and in the responses I was getting at the time was that, you know, the church is changing a lot. It's growing. This is the theology today. It will always be this way. Um, it, and so a lot of that I would bring forward in, into consultation with parishioners or others who sought out, you know, who were struggling with their sexual orientation and Roman Catholicism at the same time. The church's stained glass closet remained intact. In the 1990s, the church officially welcomed gay churchgoers, seminarians, and priests, so long as they remained celibate and kept their criticisms muted. At the same time, church officials continued to condemn homosexual relationships and to fight against gay civil unions, gay marriages, and the rights of gay parents to adopt in the United States. The Catholic Church's position of accepting same-sex sexual orientation while encouraging gay men to repress physical and emotional expressions of their desire, created, in Jeff Vohman's words, a schizophrenic atmosphere. In other words, the church created what historian Timothy Jones has called a stained glass closet, one in which gay men were given limited visibility and bounded movement within the church. This closet, although affirming in some ways, felt increasingly confining to Gary, Jeff, and Phil. Here's Jeff. I, I was in some ways really welcomed into a group of priests who were gay. Um, and, and I was welcomed by other priests, but into this like, oh, you know, we're, we're all, we're, you know, we're all gay. Or these, you know, these five people are, are all gay. Or, and that, that was really powerful. You know, it was welcoming. It was all in, in, in uh, it felt out of the closet because we were all out of the closet to each other, but we were just in sort of a bigger closet. <laughs> You know, our parishioners, by and large, didn't know. Uh, we didn't tell people outside of the priesthood or outside of a very, very close circle of friends. And so within its subculture, it, you know, it was welcoming and caring and nurturing. Uh, but, but the toxicity is or was that it was, it was still sort of this, this big secret or this big closet uh, as opposed to a little bitty closet. Church authorities became increasingly intolerant after the Boston Globe published a series of stories in 2002 exposing how the Archdiocese of Boston had covered up the actions of child-molesting priests. These articles documented how the church often moved accused priests to different parish assignments or placed them on leave in order to protect them. As these horrifying reports came to light, church traditionalists launched a rearguard action against gay priests arguing that the root of the scandal was the corrupting influence of homosexuality. These conservative Catholics increasingly peddled homophobic conspiracy theories with a particular focus on the claim that a lavender mafia was controlling the church. Homophobia was rampant in the Catholic Church's crackdown on gay priests and seminarians. In 2005, the Vatican prohibited gay men from being ordained unless they proved that their transitory homosexual tendencies were clearly overcome for at least three years. The same document banned from the priesthood men who are actively homosexual, have deep-seated homosexual tendencies, or support the so-called gay culture. The Catholic Church, in other words, attacked gay priests in order to shift blame from its widespread and ongoing failure to protect children from the pedophiles in its ranks. Here's Jeff Foman. I thought about leaving the priesthood then. I thought, oh my God, I can't believe this. And scapegoating. Nobody, no bishop in the world, uh, at least in the first world, is confused as to how many gay priests they have. But they, they kind of bank on our silence. And our, and our participation in our oppression because we don't want to lose our way of life or we don't want to give up what we have or, you know, you're, you're 55 years old or however old you are. And, and, you know, if you 
start speaking out against the church, what are you going to do? What's going to happen to you? You don't have any money to speak of. Uh, so the church really, I think really the bishops and really cynically, not all bishops, but the ones who did this, sort of cynically depend upon gay priests' silence and, and our willing participation in that oppression to, uh, to pretend that some gay priests aren't gay. Gary, like many other gay priests, understood that some church authorities were scapegoating them. The biggest scandal of that whole situation is the cover-up, and and certainly the the harm that has been done to so so many individuals. So the church, in response to that in 2005, takes a pretty rigid stance in saying publicly that they will not ordain gay men to the priesthood any longer. That that's going, you know, it's a new rule. Uh, and there's since 2004 and five and, and following, there's been a more strict interpretation of the church's teaching regarding homosexuality. Oh, it was, it was awful. It was, it was horrible. Um, I, you know, I remember talking to multiple people because that was, that was like the first real urge I had to come out publicly. Like you're comparing, I wanted to just yell and scream, hey, you're comparing me to a pedophile. I'm not a pedophile. Um, and, and it was wrong. It remains wrong. It's, uh, inappropriate and, you know, hurtful and harmful, not only to the priests, but to the congregations as well. In response to the church's greater scrutiny and suspicion of gay priests, Jeff Fomand wrote a letter of concern to the Archbishop of St. Louis, which was signed by Gary and a number of other priests. In the letter, they asked for clarification on his policy toward homosexuality and encouraged him not to follow the Vatican's stricter approach. This letter may have been the first attempt by gay priests in St. Louis to organize and also to shift the church's policies. Jeff Fomand recalled how this letter came about. I mean, I just wanted to do something. A group of us were together, and we just we got together. What can we do? You know, do you want to leave? Well, you don't want to leave. You don't want to leave. What, what do you do? And so I, we were, there were four or five of us, and I said, well, I'll, I'll write. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll write something. And then I wrote something, a draft, and another friend edited it, made it sound much better. And then, you know, this friend helped a little bit, and that friend helped a little bit. And, and pretty soon we had this, what we felt was this really, really important letters, something we wanted to say. And we asked, you know, we asked other people to sign it. And some said yes, some said no. Ultimately, 26 of us signed it and sent it. I think the letter said, uh, you know, basically, here are our concerns. You know, if you're not going to ordain men who are gay, what does it say about those of us, you know, who are gay priests? And, and what does it say about the formation we're going to have in the seminary and who we're going to welcome and how we're going to, how we're going to decide? Isn't this really going to just make people go more in the closet? And so we had some concerns about how the seminary was going to run and, and if we were going to be respected as, if gay priests were going to be respected or treated as equals even. So the bishop's reaction to that was just to not answer it, was just to not respond at all, which of course is super effective if you're a bishop, but that much more hurtful. <laughs> If you're one of his priests, so 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 as a church, as an institution, it did no good at all, at least in the short term. But as a for me, as a, on my own journey as a person, as a man, it, it was just part of me trying to find my voice. The escalating attacks on gay men in the church prompted Phil, Gary, and Jeff to leave the priesthood. In the late 1990s and early 2000s church authorities resisted efforts to legalize gay adoption and gay marriage across the United States. Phil T. Meyer left first, soon after the death of Matthew Shepard made national headlines. And welcome to Today on this Monday morning, everyone. I'm Katie Couric. Hey, I'm Ann Curry. Good morning, everybody. A terrible turn in a terrible storm. It's really tragic and so disturbing, Ann. Matthew Shepard was beaten last weekend, tied to a wooden fence by two men who met Shepard in a bar in Laramie, Wyoming. 18 hours later, a passing bicyclist summoned help after almost mistaking Shepard's bloodied body for a scarecrow. Early this morning, Matthew Shepard passed away. The story has captured national attention and sparked a debate over the necessity for hate crime legislation. Phil, like Shepard, was in his 20s in 1998. Around the time of Shepard's murder, he'd fallen in love with a fellow seminarian, and he took Shepard's death as a sign that he needed to leave the church. Matthew Shepard was basically crucified to the fence, right? 
in Wyoming. And I just remember being very sort of deeply impacted by that. That was kind of sort of a break for me to sort of see homosexuality as, as very much identified with the, the, the Christian experiences, the, the passion of, of, of Christ himself. That, um, especially because I was so acutely kind of trying to come out to myself and come out to others around me in that time uh, with the Jesuits, for that to have happened was, for me, it was sort of the sign that, that this was the divinely blessed way forward. The death of young gay men also haunted Gary Meyer. As a parish priest in the early 2000s, Gary ministered to many young gay people struggling with their sexuality. He increasingly recognized the extent to which the Catholic Church's teaching played a role in their shame, their self-hatred, and even their suicides. I come in contact with people who are gay and their struggles. I come in contact with parents of gays and their struggles. And then, unfortunately, you know, had to do funerals uh, for individuals who committed suicide. Um, and I, I remember clearly the, the, the moment it dawned on me in this one particular situation where this individual committed suicide and it was a teenager and, and it was maybe a week or so after uh, the funeral that it dawned on me that, that this person was gay and that's why they did what they did. Uh, and it just broke my heart. Um, and that wasn't the one and only time that I encountered that. There were other times where I knew it going into the funeral, and I was going to have to preach about this individual's life. Uh, but certainly, and these are young people who weren't out, maybe not even out to themselves. Uh, but you start as you get to know the family, you get to know the teenagers through the family members and their friends. You start, you get a pretty clear picture of, of what they, of, of who they were. And part of their identity, uh, whether they could admit it to themselves or not, was to be homosexual. And I, I, I think the church has a, a part in that. I think we were the strict interpretation of the teaching and the way it was being taught, uh, and some of the things that were being said from the hierarchy about homosexuality, all factors into that. I remember when I was a teenager and and I would be uh, just minding my own business in the kitchen or whatever, and I would hear an advertisement for the Phil Battle show that he, tomorrow's guest is going to be homosexual, blah, blah, blah. And I, whenever I heard the word gay or saw the word gay in print, I would, my radar would just tune into it, right? As a teenager, I'm yearning for any information about this that, that might pertain to me. And I think the same thing happens and possibly happened in the, in the lives of people who commit suicide, um, teenagers, because they're hearing, whether it's intended or not, um, they hear, uh, you know, statements from the hierarchy that are harsh and harmful, and it gets, it gets, it gets in. It, it gets in, you know, the Pope is, is saying X, Y, and Z, or the bishop is referring this, you know, referring me to this or that. Um, and that's where, that, that's where I think the church has some responsibility it's not willing to, to take yet. Um, but that's, at least that was another huge driving force for me, is, is that it just, it, it just kept escalating. And more and more of that was happening. Here's Phil T. Meyer. This was just a tremendous gift, right, to be able to kind of come out in in such a, a spiritual setting and in such a supportive setting. But then, you know, geez, the minute that celibacy isn't the only way that you can have uh, social standing, right? That you can feel like you belong. It, and for me, ultimately, of course, these are tied in with, with self-esteem issues, right? The only, you know, I didn't have to have celibacy to have self-esteem. And that meant that all of a sudden, I wasn't sure I wanted it. <laughs> Why do this if you don't have to? <laughs> Why not, you know, have sex? Why not, uh, you know, try to build a loving partnership? And, you know, I was still, you know, I was about 28, I guess. Why not just 
be part of gay life and go out on Friday night and have fun and on Saturday night and Sunday afternoon, you know, I didn't have to be there anymore for me. And I still thought, I mean, there's enough oomph to the, uh, the spiritual appeal to me of being a priest, but that I honestly seriously considered to sort of like so many of my great role models, just being a gay priest, the ones that I know, the ones that I have tremendous regard for and, and love for, they do a great job, both of being gay and being priest. And I thought, yeah, I could do that. But I, I think because I was uh, on the progressive side of Catholicism, to have stayed when I no longer had to for self-esteem, to have stayed would have been really toxic for me, intellectually, politically, uh, and ultimately spiritually. I, I do not believe that the John Paul II and the Rothfingers are what Christianity should be, what the church should be. And I would have been heavily compromised to be a public persona representing that church to an ever-dwindling number of Catholics who believe in that church. Um, and the people who believe in that church aren't the ones that I want to spend my life ministering to. Jeff and Gary left the priesthood roughly a decade after Phil. Their departure came as the national battle over gay marriage heated up across the United States. Gay rights organizations made limited gains through court cases and legislative victories in the early 2000s. As national support for gay marriage grew, Catholic organizations played an increasingly important role in a counter-movement against gay marriage. In 2004, 11 states had banned gay marriage. By 2006, the total number of states that prohibited gay marriage had grown to 20. Church leaders, meanwhile, condemned homosexuality in ever stronger terms. Inside the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception, Portland's largest Catholic church, beautiful music this Sunday morning, and the passing of the basket. Money's collected usually going to support church functions. Today, a double passing to pay for TV ads aimed at overturning a state law just passed that allows gays and lesbians to marry. The marriage equality law taking center stage, the pastor telling the faithful to ask themselves, what would Jesus do? Marriage predates government. Since the beginning of time, marriage has been understood by people of every faith and culture to be the union of a man and a woman. And then it was time for the second passing. Parishioners we spoke with say they believe the new law is not in keeping with what God would want. I hope we can go back to the tradition as it was marriage should be between a man and a woman, at least in the state that I live in. As church officials attacked gay marriage, Jeff and Gary found it increasingly difficult to remain on the sidelines. As Jeff recalled, The growing awareness of participating in my own oppression. You know, that I was being, that gay people were being oppressed, that people in the world were fighting and risking their lives so that I was, that gay people would have a better life, and I wasn't doing that a little bit like a freeloader or a free rider. You, you know, there were people out in the world having all this courage and saying, I'm gay, you can't treat me that way. And they were kind of fighting for me. And I, and I was silent. I hated that. I feel like I was courageous on, 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 in, in other ways, but not in that way, not in the way that mattered most to me personally. But that was happening on an intellectual level, for sure. On a personal level, I was trying to get I was trying to get to know and be around more gay people, you know, like figuring out what it meant to be, grow old as a gay man, be a gay man. What, what was it like? And 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 that that led me to, I guess, a wider sense of like what 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 was possible, you know, like wow, here are some men grown old as gay. Here are some partners who have been, you know, together for thirty years. That's fantastic. Some women who've been living together and raising kids for years. Wow, I had no idea. That was all happening to me. And I was trying to figure out how I was going to live in this world. And then in the midst of that, I really did. I, I fell in love again. I don't know how else to say it. I, I, maybe there's no other way to say it. I fell in love. And, and then, all, then it just became so intensely personal. Wow. I, I don't want people to perceive me as asexual or non-sexual or as straight. 
I don't want people to think for a moment that I believe that I, you know, these hurtful teachings. I, I, I want to grow, you know, as, as who I am. And, and I, don't want, I don't want to participate for a second in a church that tells some young person that their love isn't holy, that their love isn't valuable, or that their love isn't a gift. I remember, I remember telling the bishop, I was talking to him, and he was a really good, he was gracious and very kind to me. And uh, he said, you know, Jeff, if you're celibate and joyful, why leave? And I said, well, I don't know, but, you know, this gay marriage thing is coming around the corner. This is back in 2011, 2012. And at some point, it's going to come to, I was in St. Louis, it's going to come to Missouri. And you're, you're a good bishop. You're going to say, oh, this is terrible. And you should oppose it. And I'm not going to say that. In fact, I'm going to be on the opposite side. And I'm going to say, this is fantastic. We should celebrate it. And then me and you are going to have a trouble. Then what's going to happen? Then you're going to have to do something to me. And I'm going to, you know, I don't want all that mess. Perhaps if I had been more courageous, I would have stayed. And I don't know that I'm that courageous, just to tell you the truth. Like Jeff, Gary found it increasingly difficult to reconcile his own ideas about homosexuality with the church's opposition to the gay marriage movement. In 2008, uh, the election, the presidential election of Barack Obama, and the, at that time, gay marriage was on the rise, right? Gay marriage was already legalized in a few states, and people, you know, it became a national story of, of uh, this Institute for, for Gay Marriage and the support for equality in that regard. To counteract that in the 2008 elections, the, the, the Mormons and the Roman Catholic Church of the United States led a huge campaign against that, um, sending out DVDs to every household in many dioceses, sending out flyers and information that Catholics need to work against gay marriage and they need to support the church's teaching on homosexuality. And that was a big deal for me. Uh, to watch the Catholic Church take the leadership role in this anti-gay marriage, anti-gay campaign. I just remember feeling like it hurt when I would come across bishop statements and, and things along those lines that were so anti-gay. The rhetoric was so harsh at that time. Uh, in, a, in a way, in, in, in an attempt to persuade uh, the people in the pews um, to not vote uh, for a candidate who was who, who was going to support gay marriage and the like. Gary attempted to speak out against the Catholic Church's condemnation of homosexuality in his book, Hidden Voices, Reflections of a Gay Catholic Priest. When I uh, wrote the book, uh, I wrote it anonymously in 2011. So my idea at the time was I was going to write a book, a publication, to get another voice out there because there were so many anti-gay Catholic voices out in public. And I thought, well, I'll just write this book and everybody's going to flock to it and it's going to be published anonymously and I can then, you know, um, you know whatever. And still remain a priest and not have to worry about that. Um, needless to say, you know, a few people picked it up, <laughs> a few royalties, but nobody really cared. By the end of 2012's election and all of that kind of thing, I, I said, okay, now it's time. You know, I need to put my name on this book and put it out there. So in 2013, I do that. And it, it corresponded with the 15th anniversary to my preacher of nation. Um, and so I had a book launch and put my name on the book. And then within a matter of a couple of days, uh, that, my story went viral uh, on the internet. Uh, Huffington Post and people like that picked it up and were putting it out and I was doing, started doing interviews and within a couple of weeks I was on CNN and BBC and NPR and a whole bunch of other things. And it's here and now. Let's bring in Reverend Gary Meyer. He took a leave of absence from his parish in North St. Louis, Missouri last year after telling his archbishop he couldn't teach the Roman Catholic Church's stance on homosexuality because he is gay. My role uh, in the Catholic Church at that point was the priest on leave of absence, was back in school and discerning. Um, but it did open up the conversation with the diocese as to whether or not, you know, I would ever return to ministry or not. 
and it was it, basically the response was, look, you know, the fish is always open to you. You're welcome to come back anytime you want. And, I, and then I said, what about, what about what I believe about homosexuality, that it's a gift, it's not a cross, it's something given by God, and, you know, it should be celebrated. And, well, you know, there's a lot of ways you can communicate the teaching of homosexuality, and then we sort of got in, you know, these discussions about what I call theological gymnastics, where you kind of nuance here and there, which I, which I had been very successful at doing for 15 years, um, without ever saying what I truly believe, but kind of implying what I truly believe, that kind of thing. And I'm just not willing to, I just wasn't willing to do that. I'm just not going to do that. The truth is homosexuality is a gift, period. We are who we are, celebrated. So I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to compromise what I had said in the book by re, you know, coming back into a ministry position that would sort of force me to go back into the closet. In 2015, the United States Supreme Court ruled that same-sex couples had the right to marry. Almost immediately, some church authorities expressed concern that the ruling would conflict with Catholic teachings. The traditionalist National Catholic Register questioned how the outcome would impact religious organizations that hold deep and sincere beliefs opposed to same-sex marriage. Yet, leaders within the Catholic Church have shown more explicit support for same-sex couples than ever before. In October 2020, a documentary film premiering at the Rome Film Festival included Pope Francis's endorsement of same-sex civil unions. While many gay Catholics and their allies celebrated the news, more conservative Catholic leaders openly condemned Pope Francis's comments. Only a few weeks after Pope Francis's comments reached the public, the Supreme Court heard arguments in Fulton versus City of Philadelphia. The plaintiffs in the case, Catholic Social Services, along with several foster care parents, are contesting the decision of the City of Philadelphia to exclude the agency from its foster care placement system. In 2018, the city learned that Catholic Social Services was refusing to place children with same-sex couples and thus failed to comply with the city's non-discrimination policy. According to the Catholic Social Services suit, the City of Philadelphia violated the organization's First Amendment rights to religious freedom and free speech. Should the Supreme Court decide in favor of Catholic Social Services, the case will clear the way for private agencies that provide government services to discriminate against LGBTQ people. For decades, queer Catholics have struggled to reconcile religious and sexual identity within an institution that loves them conditionally. By fighting for religious exemptions from non-discrimination laws, Catholic leaders and organizations in the United States are carving out new anti-gay spaces in the public square while buttressing the stained glass closets in their communities. LGBTQ Catholics have ironically shown the church more grace than they have often received. LGBTQ Catholic laity and priests and those that love them will continue to face a difficult decision about whether to live within or step outside the church's stained glass closet. For Jeff, Phil and Gary, and for so many other Catholics who are forced to choose between their church and their desires, their church's limited love is hardly a saving grace. But I want you to know that there are other voices coming from our church. These are the voices coming from the pews. These are the rising voices of faith who believe in the inherent dignity and equality of all people, regardless of who they love. And I want you to hear these voices, the rising voices of faith, and know that you are loved, that you are supported, and that you are absolutely beautiful just the way you are. For everyone born a place at the table. Sexing History is written and produced by Gillian Frank and me, Lauren Gutterman. Our senior producer is Sunia Liganawi. Rebecca Davis is our story editor and producer. Our assistant producers are Stephen Colebrook and Mallory Zemanski. 
Catherine Kenny and Felix Young are our research associates. Our summer interns who made this episode possible were Ian McCabe, Hugh McNeil, and Emily Vaughn. Thank you to Brian McNaught, Gary Meyer, Phil T. Meyer, and Jeff Fomond for sharing their stories with us. We are indebted to James McCartan, whose scholarship and advice informed this episode. To learn more about his research and to see our liner notes for this episode and all of our previous episodes, please visit our website at www.sexinghistory.com. Sexing History is made possible with generous funding from Alan Zwickler of the Phil Zwickler Charitable and Memorial Foundation. Created in honor of the journalist, filmmaker, poet, and gay activist Phil Zwickler, the Foundation seeks to promote human rights, education, health, and the arts, specifically with respect to the gay and lesbian community, and generally with regard to those individuals and groups who need assistance to survive and be heard. Visit them at pzfoundation.org. We are also grateful for the support of the University of Delaware College of Arts and Sciences Program for Undergraduate Summer Research. Sexing History is also supported by funding from the Humanities Media Project in the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas, Austin. The Humanities Media Project aims to tell human stories and invite critical conversations that educate, inspire, and connect communities. They believe that the humanities play a crucial role in maintaining a healthy, democratic society. Sexing History is grateful for a grant from the Program in American Studies and the Americas Center, Centro de las Americas, University of Virginia. The Americas Center promotes the interdisciplinary study of the arts, cultures, histories, and societies of the Americas. From all of us at Sexing History, thanks for listening. And God.